Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Charles Cantor, Newberger Berman Sr., Portfolio Manager. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Jonathan. Here's the quote in your blog, and I noticed that you only write blogs when um, we get vicious drawdowns. Um, February, and then once again in October. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Why is that true for the market? Because uh, we think this correction is 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 one where where it it's 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 normal within the context of 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 markets. Markets go down. Um, and they go down increasingly quickly in a, in a globally interconnected world. Um, we think the fundamentals are still strong. I think we find it hard to ignore the, the, the earnings yield versus 10-year bond yield as, as an indicator of, of, of attraction. Um, and we think the forward multiple on the market is, is, is one way where, where one shouldn't ignore either. People look for reasons to try and explain drawdowns in the market. It, um, we stay focused on the fundamentals. You're going to have a busy week this week because you have a vast number of companies in in in, in the technology sector are going to give you an update on on, on the state of business um, and as go those as go the fundamentals we think go the market you're in a bit of a did I say you're in a bit of a a, mark, a news vacuum right now as it relates to fundamentals? You're certainly not in a news vacuum as it relates to, to, to the globals going on. Um, but, but we think this is just a, a traditional drawdown within the context of, of, of a really attractive, attractive market. Um, and, and we wouldn't be rushing to judgment. We find it really hard to guess, to guess market direction. Um, and so we rely on what the companies are saying and, 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 and the value underlying the, the pieces of paper. So let's talk about what the companies are saying. United Technologies out this morning with decent earnings, boosting their guidance. The earnings are okay. I mean, it's early days in the earnings season, but the earnings season certainly seems okay so far. Look, I think the, the market's worried about this idea that corporate profits are going to grow 20% this year and only grow 10% next year. Only. Only grow 10% next year. So it's a second derivative argument that, that, that earnings growth is slowing, which, which factually it is. Um, and then there's this worry about interest rates and 10-year uh, you know, bond yields. Is that a headwind to valuation? Um, um, so, so, but the story so far with the earnings cycle hasn't been about beating earnings. Beating earnings hasn't been enough. You've actually had to beat on the top line. Um, sales growth versus expectations um, has been the determinant on how securities have traded. Um, top line misses and bottom line beats has not got the job done. And that's a little different, candidly, than what we saw in, in, in the first and second quarter. The story, by the way, of the second quarter um, was, that, was that the over 25% growth you saw in earnings, two-thirds of that was driven by better fundamentals, by revenue growth and margin expansion. And only one-third was this idea that it was all tax-driven and, and buyback-driven. Um, and, and, and I think the market responded well to that. The market responded well again to, to getting a better sense of, of how businesses um, are positioned for the rest of the year. Uh, John wants me to jump in here, but I, I can't concentrate. Why not? What's there's, wrong? There's a baseball game tonight. And you're already sort of losing I, focus? I'm like, you know, I talked to Haley Koufax here at Bloomberg, who's like a dire Dodgers, and this is a big deal, 102 years. We, you know, perspective over time. 
The Dodgers haven't played there since 2010. I didn't know that. I didn't realize it's been that long. Yeah. I so didn't realize like, you're an expert on baseball, I'm Jonathan. I'm so Jonathan's so wound up on this. He's been picking out a Premier League team for me for the last six weeks. I've that, been doing my best. That's been torture as well. Charles, you talk about baseball and the yeah. length of time as well. Yes. In this equity market, have we lost perspective with the great bull market? Now, there's just too many players and participants across all time zones of investment who've lost perspective. I don't know if they've lost perspective, but but one of the characteristics of what's taken place since 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 the bottom in the market has been unusually high annualized returns for for risk assets with unusually low volatility. If, yeah. you, look, if you look at the re- relationship between return and volatility, <clears throat> it's astonishingly um, upside down. Over long periods of time, equity returns have generally been you know half that of volatility, and right now they're sitting at two okay. times volatility, which is a statement around. We, we've lost a sense of grounding around okay. what volatility exactly. means. Is Jerome Powell going to give us that grounding? I don't think no individual will give you that grounding. It, 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 complacency breeds complacency. And all of a sudden, people wake up and feel shocked to their boots with the idea that the futures market could be down a percent. What happened from, from February to, to, the, to, to early October was the slow and boring 14% move up with no volatility. So I think when you make the transition from the monetary-led world to the fiscally-led yeah. world, you're going to make a transition in, in, in volatility as well. And it, and, it, and it should benefit folks like us where, 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 where the idea around investing centers on the fundamentals. Um, and, and you'll have much more bifurcated outcomes when, when fiscal policy takes over versus monetary policy. So let's talk about that. We've had a couple of false dawns over the last couple of years, but certainly every time we get a drawdown, there's a conversation about regime change, breaking out of this Goldilocks story in the economy and this low volatility regime. Are we seeing regime change, Charles? And what kind of regime are we entering into? I'm not, it depends how you think about um, regime change. The, 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 another observation about the market this year has been the tremendous bifurcation between companies that are, thought of as growth companies versus companies that are thought of as value companies. I mean, I think that the, the medium, the, the average security in the S&P as of this morning, I think on a one-year basis or on a year-to-date basis, was basically flat. While the, the S&P itself was up a few percent because of the influence of mega cap technology on the market, the average stock is flat on this year. Um, the regime change, I think, I think the, the one area where you haven't seen regime change is is people's exuberance in prospective equity returns. People um, and investors broadly remain very balanced in in how they think about reward and risk. In fact, they still tilt more towards risk than reward, which to me is an unusual outcome given the comments are made about how high returns have been and how low volatility have been, has been. Um, so... It depends how you think about regime change. There's a hope out there that that companies that 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 simply grow um, in sectors that aren't technology can get a benefit of the valuation. The, the other regime change that hasn't taken place is 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 is, is valuations. Um, have remained very contained. Yeah. Um, um, and again, I think that's against the idea that that there hasn't been excessive um, exuberance of optimism in the equity market. I think there's possibly exuberance of optimism in, in other markets, um, whether those be private markets or bond markets, but certainly not in equity markets. 
some people would say the exuberance is a prerequisite to call the market top. I mean, if you're saying we haven't been conditioned by some of these big returns over the last few years, are you also saying that the end of this bull market isn't in sight? I think that's right. I think as go profits, um, um, so goes the market from where we're trading today. If you think about the earnings yield on the S&P today, it's over 6%. 10-year treasuries are, are, are 3%. Um, there's a variety of ways, of course, that gap can close. Value, um, stock prices can go up or treasury yields can go up to, to, to close that gap. Um, but, but I don't think you lose a lot of money on a, on a three to five year basis by buying the market um, at, at 15 times forward earnings. I, I, I find that a hard concept to wrap my arms around. Charles Cantor, great to catch up with you. Newberger Berman, Senior Portfolio Manager on a morning where S&P 500 futures, Tom, and negative 1.23%. Yeah. Really been looking forward to this interview. Frank Newport has decades of experience with Gallup, of looking at the foibles of polls, the value of polls as well. Frank Newport, when you see a congressional election in a set of Senate elections, in polls are nationwide, all in Democrat, nationwide, all in Republican. What do they capture? Do they have any value at all? Uh, national polls, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, oh, they do, absolutely. Two in particular, uh, the job approval rating of the incumbent president uh, is correlated with the outcome of midterm elections. And second, the so-called generic ballots, uh, which ask people in your district, would you vote for the Democratic or the Republican candidate, also are correlated with outcomes. So both of those right now are still positive for Democrats, although they've been eroding some from a Democratic perspective in recent days. Can people like you animals, statistical beasts like Frank Newport. Can you poll for turnout? Well, we try. Uh, we ask a number of questions, including are you more or less enthusiastic about voting? And we have a series of other questions. We're actually in the field now asking about uh, how likely are you to vote, how interested are you in the election. So you can try to do turnout, but that's tricky. Uh, I think that was one of the problems with some of the state polls in 2016. They didn't capture the right yeah. turnout metrics among certain voters okay. who voted for Trump. But we can certainly ask the questions and try to put them in context based on history. Well, Frank, we love having you on because your humility in all this game. Are you any smarter than you were 24 months ago? Uh, you mean in general? As I age, am I getting as you smarter? Age, Is that a become, question? Well, it depends if you're talking to the, uh, the youngest child in the family. Let me rephrase yeah. the question, Mr. Newport. What did you learn in 2016 in polling that you're trying to avoid now? Well, uh, actually, as you know, the national polls are pretty accurate, so uh, we, we don't change yeah, much on that. Yeah, but this isn't front, a national but... election. I, what I learned is, and I'll be probably what I say in this response, I think this is very important, is be careful of models. Be careful of people who try to give you an yeah. uh, overall probability estimate of what's going to happen. Polls are fragile in small congressional districts and in some states, and these models all depend on polls in these districts or other kind of estimates, and you have to be cautious. You have to be, uh, have some humility in trying to estimate what's going on. And part of this, Frank, is in our Kevin Cirilli, I thought, zeroed in on Michigan, on Michigan in 2016, a big deal. What does Gallup say about individual states? And let's pick on Michigan. What does Gallup see in a state like Michigan? 
Well, we're not polling at the state level, so I can't give but you. But what do you, you see know, within a, a the industry? Estimate. What do you see well, within I, the industry? Well, I think that you have to be. Uh, I don't know. You know whether the uh, who's going to win in Michigan. I think you have to be very cautious at this point because yeah. there are two weeks, and two weeks is an eternity. So I can't give you an answer to that. I would not estimate who's going to win in that state. So the president, just you know, the guy that's most visible. Uh, certainly using the caravan and uh, the people from Honduras and Guatemala moving north into Mexico. I mean, obviously that shifts things two weeks out. When do polls in a midterm lock in? Um, I don't think they really lock in until the day before the election. Uh, people really haven't been focusing. And as you just said, we've had the Kavanaugh situation. We've had now the uh, Republican focus on this caravan. We've had Trump himself going to rallies almost every night. All of those are recent developments and therefore could change how things are happening. So I think we have to still monitor what's happening over the next two weeks. We cannot be complacent and say, well, we know what's going to happen and nothing's going to change. Things are going to change. Uh, these last two mm -hmm. weeks are vital for both sides. What what do you see among the Democrats? Bernie Sanders out overnight, a nice uh, effort by the New York Times this morning to get his angst about Democratic turnout. The president is focused, as you mentioned. Do you see a coherent Democrat message? Uh, no, and that's part of the problem. Uh, Trump, I think history will show, has a real genius uh, for correctly or incorrectly, truthful or not truthful, stoking up his base with some very simple messages like immigration, which he has created as a major issue for Republicans where it didn't used to be. Uh, I don't think the Democrats have a comparable kind of uh, shrewdness on their part, which is which is a problem for the Democrats. They're, they're diffuse, uh, they're nice uh, in some ways, and they're just not getting the same kind of single theme out that I think the Republicans Republicans and Trump are able to do. If you're just joining us, Frank Newport with Gallup Poll. Thrilled that he's on uh, with us this morning. And yeah, we're focused on the midterms, but there's a lot of other issues as well. Frank, you've done a lot of work at Gallup on working America. You do these special, almost philosophical polls about the place we are within society. Is the angst that was there in the fall of 2016 is it really been replaced by a 4% make America great again economy, or is the angst still there? Uh, we still see angst in the data. Clearly, when we ask about the national economy, we've seen a continuing positive rise on the consumer confidence type indicators where Americans say, yes, the economy is doing well. Um, but we do see some signs of anxiety, not huge, mind you. But when we ask about artificial intelligence and robots taking over your jobs, we've got large percents of Americans are saying, yeah, that's actually going to affect jobs in the future. Uh, so underneath it all, I think there is some anxiety there. But when you look at the broad measures, Americans uh, are recognizing the reality, at least uh, unless the market continues to crash, you know, over the months to come, that, that the economy's doing yeah. well. Frank, within this, what do you look at election night? I mean, a midterm election, and I was shocked at the turnout in previous midterm elections. What is it, roughly? Uh, last election, I just looked that up, was uh, a little under 37% of eligible voters, and that would have been the last midterm, which was 2014. Right. So that's terrible. That's terrible. Well, let's rephrase in, in, in that. Two-thirds like two of Americans didn't vote in the last midterm, right? Uh, roughly, it, a little under that, but that's absolutely right. A clear majority of eligible voters did not vote. Is that going to change this time? 
I think it might edge up a few points, but history shows that it's hard to move the needle considerably. In other words, we're not going to see over 50% voting. Absolutely right. not. Maybe it'll edge up a little, depending on what happens right. among Democrats, but it's going to be low, and that's a tragedy. I'm almost in favor now in my old age of a national voting law like they have in other countries. We need to get people out to vote, and they just don't. They sit on their rear ends and don't vote, and that's bad. Within this is the money spent. I, you know, I'll let you pick the district, or maybe our Kevin Cirilli would have a better idea. But I'm going to pick folks, a given district in Ohio. I don't have it in front of me. And they're spending kajillions of dollars on endless TV ads simply replaced by a single sports moment where Purdue beat Ohio State. Okay, that's the color that we've got now. Purdue beat Ohio State. And the rest is ads. Is that money well spent? Does that actually move voters? Well, you know, Bloomberg's a business-oriented uh, network, and these people who spend the dollars are business-oriented, and they would claim it does work. Uh, people tell us in polls they hate these yeah. negative ads that they're being bombarded with in these areas where there are competitive races. They say, they don't affect me. I hate them. I wish they wouldn't do it. The data show they can move the needle, though, and that's why these consultants – of course, consultants make money on them, so they have a vested interest in this. You're but kidding. I think consultants who look at it claim uh, that uh, whether you yeah. like it or not, loathsome though these negative ads may be, they do move the needle. Frank Newport, thank you for the update. Greatly appreciate it. Dr. Newport, uh, getting it done with Gallup always. With and again, and again, what I love about Frank Newport is he realizes the foibles of plus or minus 3%. Truly history made today. In Istanbul, there's no other way to uh, uh, say it. Saddam Bakil gave us wonderful perspective off of the Erdogan speech, and she's kind enough to join us in her London afternoon with Chatham House and their senior consulting research fellow. Saddam, we're waiting for responses. There have been grisly, unsourced, or I should say unreported sourcing in the last couple hours from Sky News. Forget about that. I would assume any nation, including a royal family, has to have a cogent response. What's the cogent response appropriate for Saudi Arabia? That's a very good question. I think that right now the reason why they're not coming out with a cogent response is because uh, they are trying uh, to game the expectations of the U.S. government, particularly the president. This is a relationship that uh, they worked very hard to develop, and they want to preserve it at all costs without, at the same time, seeing a demotion or seeing any loss of power for the young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Dr. Vakil, can you speak about the relationship that exists or doesn't exist between Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, and why Iran is important to this conversation? Uh, this is a triangular relationship that is fraught with um, tensions more than uh, friendly relationships. Iran and Saudi Arabia in particular have had a long-standing regional rivalry. Turkey is uh, the third regional power of, of great influence around um, the Middle East. And the three compete um, in, in very different ways, and this would probably take hours to really unpack and explain. But in brief, Iran matters because the Trump administration uh, worked very hard um, and alongside Saudi Arabia, the UAE, 
and uh, Israel to develop a very comprehensive strategy to contain Iran's influence in the region. And uh, this crisis uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi is weakening Saudi Arabia's influence, perhaps even will lead to a fracturing, um, to, to a certain degree, a fracturing of U.S.-Saudi relationship, and that in turn will have knock-on effects in the U.S. ability, maybe, uh, to contain Iran in the region. At the same time, it could also have the reverse outcome in that uh, the United States can put greater pressure on Saudi Arabia to perhaps uh, be uh, the swing producer um, for oil um, because uh, the U.S. government is going to put sanctions on Iran's oil exports on November 5th. All right, now so pressure, there are a lot of dynamics here. Clearly, and I, and I appreciate you trying to set them out for us. I, I'm wondering if, if maybe, you know, when you talk about pressure, they're all different types of pressure, and now we can get maybe specific because Jamal Khashoggi, as I understand it, was the nephew of Adnan Khashoggi, who uh, made a career as an arms uh, and uh, weapons uh, dealer. Indeed, the, the the yacht that he owned was eventually purchased by Donald by President Donald Trump. Do you believe that Jamal Khashoggi has had files or information? that is wide-ranging in its implications for the leadership of, of the Saudi government. Well, Jamal Khashoggi was very close to different individuals um, in the Saudi government and has had a long had a long career of providing advice and guidance um, to past kings and advisors. I don't know if he had files on everyone, but he was a person of influence, really because uh, he cared about Saudi Arabia and he wanted to see Saudi Arabia not just promote economic reform. Uh, but also pursue political and social reform. Uh, and I think that that wasn't just the hope that uh, Jamal Khashoggi had. Many people would like to see Saudi Arabia liberalize and provide uh, political um, openings uh, for their very young population. Within that is an idea of a royal family. I, I mean, they have to move forward out of this. Where would you assume the royal family will be in six months? Well, I, I can't predict exactly how they're going to Agreed. necessarily okay. play this, but I, I, I do think that the royal family, despite this crisis, is, uh, is stable. The royal family is quite large. King Salman um, has authority and support. The question is, does Mohammed bin Salman have that authority and support? Um, over the past yeah. year, year and a half, he has pursued some um, dubious policies, made some um, moves that we've all been questioning and wondering um, about, including the war in Yemen, including the kidnapping of the Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri, including the downgrading of diplomatic relations with Canada. Um, so he does now have a track record of uh, overstepping and maybe making right. uh, mistakes in his decision-making. Well, so chances so, are there yeah. could be a shuffling um, of the cards. Sam and I, we'd like to talk more. We've got to run with markets moving. Saddam Vakil, Chatham House, giving us wonderful perspective earlier this morning and again here in her London afternoon.
she's coming to medicate us. She'll be medicating Pim Fox Remote at the Build America uh, Studios, Build America Mutual Studios. Gina Martin-Adams here, who has been wonderful and courageous from the Lehman Lows of 2009 of being in the market. Uh, my fractured math to two decimal points is negative 7.8% roughly, uh, is how far we're down from the vicinity of early October. That's not a correction, is it? Not quite. Technically, you have to get to 10% for a correction, though I will say that this yeah. sell-off that we're in has all the characteristics of a correction. Right. Um, and I think if you look back to 2011 mm. when we had a 20% correction or 2015 when we had a 15% correction, yeah. there are signals this time that we're in for something similar, though there is no recession imminent on the horizon. There's right. no big breakdown in corporate credit to suggest this is a strong turn in fundamentals, we are absolutely repricing our expectations. What we're repricing here is, good morning, John Maggie and his classic textbook of the 1940s, is a set of lower highs going back to early October, counting on a daily basis, Pim Fox, one, two, three, four, and then five, six, seven, eight, nine, and now 10. What does a series of lower highs mean to a fundamentalist? Uh, it might not mean a ton to a fundamentalist, but to a technician, it's a very, very negative signal. Really? Yeah, and it, it's, a series of lower, it's a series of lower highs and lower lows. We're breaking through some pretty critical support levels. We've broken down beyond the 200-day moving average. This week, it looks like we're going to break the 50-week moving average, which has served as a fundamental or a technical support level. I think the fundamental analysts right now are worried about the earnings outlook, uh, worried about margins for S&P 500 companies, which have come under some correction. There are a lot of headlines out there today that investors are worried about peak earnings. I don't think that's true at all. I think investors are worried about peak earnings growth rates and are reducing their expectations for earnings growth going forward. But we're not concerned about peak earnings as a general level. I do think earnings are going to continue to go higher, but not at the 20 to 25 percent pace that we've yeah. become accustomed to. Pim? Gina, like three quarters of the S&P 500 companies that have reported so far have exceeded their earnings targets, correct? Right. They have. And I think when it comes to absolute third quarter earnings, you're on pace for somewhere around 22 percent earnings growth maybe even a little bit stronger as we see the series of earners come in. And this speaks right to my point, Pim. We're not experiencing an earnings shortfall. Uh, we're merely reassessing our expectations going forward. I think the key is companies are beating earnings, but not giving investors the confidence that they're going to see faster and faster earnings growth going forward. And as a matter of fact, over the last month, we've seen S&P uh, 500 earnings estimates for 2019 EPS deteriorate, come off about 0.2%. This is the first time we've seen this this year. So it's, an, it's a difference in fundamental environment that we're trying to price where maybe the earnings outlook isn't completely impenetrable. It's not that we're trying to price for earnings deterioration. We're simply trying to price a slower period of growth in earnings going forward. Okay, that makes sense, but does it make sense then that with the Dow at 25,000 and the S&P 500 trading at 2718 that you're up only one and a half percent year to date on both of those indexes? Oh, Pim, go to cash. <laughs> well, I think you have to consider that stocks are generally forward-looking entities. So no, no, I going... understand, but, but, but Gina, I mean, you talked about the 20% earnings pop, yep. right, for the mm -hmm. third quarter. 
Well, what happened to the previous three quarters if we're only up one and a half percent? Well, we're up only up one and a half percent on the year, but we're up significantly over the full year from a year ago, right? And when we're if you're talking year to date 2018, we're only up one and a half percent. But from yeah. where we were this time last year, we're still up significantly. You're only um, up five. You're only not even up six percent yeah. on the S and P. And a lot of this is coming out of the multiple. I mean, the thing we haven't talked about yet is this is not just an earnings story. It's also a story of markets pricing real interest rates for the first time exactly. in the cycle. That's right. We're and that's taking, yeah. taking some wind out of the sails of the equity market multiple yeah. that is also creating a downdraft. Describe that choice set, not only for institutional shareholders, but retail hasn't felt it since um, I was younger, uh, which is the basic idea. I'm in stocks, but I'm looking at dot, 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 that's a good yield alternative. What is that? It used to be a five-year CD. That's not true. What is that competition now for the equity bid? You know, with all due respect to the five-year CD, I think it actually is increasingly cash. All of a sudden, investors do have positive rates on cash. There is a climate out there where individuals are very risk intolerant as a general rule. They're willing to take two to three percent as yeah. a reasonable return coming well, off yeah, of zero you can that get over three okay. percent you can get over three percent tom in a in a uh, five-year cd okay well i'm in the double leverage all cash fund so you know i'm not this is not my <laughs> debate pim fox at build america mutual tom keen in new york with gina martin adams of bloomer thrilled that she's with us negative 420 440 maybe on the dow now negative 322 24,996 with a VIX, 24 print, comes in with a vengeance, a better VIX over the last 20 minutes, 22.50. I'm watching yen slightly weaker off fear and strength, 112.14 on yen. So that's sort of the framework of the market with uh, yields in seven uh, basis points, lower yield 3.13% on the 10-year yield. John Templeton... Uh, a great, a giant of value investing lived for corrections. Mm-hmm. So how do you rationalize acquiring shares somewhere in the vicinity of a correction and then once every X number of times it becomes a true bear market? Yeah, well, I think you look for a couple of signals. I, you know, when you really want to flee stocks is when you see an economic recession as imminent because economic recessions have proven, especially over the last two, to be very devastating for equities. That is not the case today. Instead, you're looking at an equity market correction absent economic recession. The result of that is uh, it's really all about your time horizon. If you're an investor that wants to get a return over the next quarter, six months, you probably do want to shave some of your risk. You probably do want to add a little bit of cash to your portfolio. If you're an investor that has a 12 to 24 month horizon and you don't see recession in the future, this is an opportunity to add. Um, and, and I think if you have a very long-term horizon, I love 10% corrections. Any 10% correction for me with Shares young children sales, that I have to send John to college is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and you're looking at an equity risk premium right now yeah. that's still well above long-term average, yeah. even though bond rates yeah. have repriced. So. Sir, Pim, Sir Pim, jump in here. Well, no, I just wanted to know, okay, if you like 10% corrections, what industry groups? Yeah. I think you look for all cyclicals, but you look especially toward later cycle cyclicals. You know, the cats of the world that are getting beaten up today. Uh, On the offsetting story there that nobody's talking about is UTX, which actually beat expectations. Uh, Nonetheless, industrials are a classic late cycle sector that's getting beaten down. 
energy stocks or late cycle sector that's getting beaten down. Materials. So stocks, what does that mean? Do you cycle. buy them? Are those the yeah, ones? Yeah, I think buy? those are the ones you start to look for uh, ideas right. in. They're the value-oriented mm. sectors that are extremely discounted relative to their long-term history. Also have the greatest potential for recovery once yeah. we get through this corrective process. Okay, we'll come back uh, again. Gina Martin Adams, thank you so much. Out of our equities at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.